This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And thank you. It's a pleasure to be here um, in this fabulous symposium. I will be talking about mathematics, and mathematics is perhaps one of the most abstract, complex, and precise human conceptual systems ever invented. Think about the, the Euclidean point, for example. It's an entity that has only one property, that's location. No extension whatsoever, so no Euclidean point exists really objectively in the universe, and we have no biology to perceive a Euclidean point. Yet, the Euclidean point, the humble little guy, is the cornerstone of the edifice of Euclidean geometry that led to analytic geometry, non-Euclidean geometries, differential geometries, many other fields in, in mathematics. So one area um, that we could look at for the origins of this fabulous um, human conceptual system, this abstract thing, is number. So to begin, <clears throat> consider the following. If you presented, let's say, with this stimuli, it's very easy for us to discriminate between them. But when the amount of dots increases, it's not as easy, and we make a few more mistakes, and we make confusions. Now, the capacity to discriminate when there's only few of them is called subitizing, and it's been studied by experimental psychologists since the 1940s. So this is an ability we don't need to go to school to, and we share with many other species. Another ability is the following. If we present it, let's say, with... Um, these groups of dots, black and white, when their proportions differ considerably, it's very easy for us to say which one has more, even though we don't, may not know exactly how many, but we can tell. When the proportions are closer to each other, it's a little harder and sometimes very, very difficult. So this capacity is referred to as large quantity discrimination. Now, these two capacities we share with many other species, as I was saying, so this has led to many, really, to believe that this is about now mathematics. So you would tend to see many papers and chapters and academic material talking about monkey mathematical abilities and, and kids in infancy without schooling and arithmetic occurring at a single neuron level and so on and so forth, all the way to, more recently, number numerical cognition in bees and other insects. Now, of course, this is academia, and then the media takes over and says, well, like the New York Times here, science section early this year, many animals can count some better than you. And I know there's some individuals in power now who also say the New York Times report on fake news these days. But that's not the only one. Sometimes we see you know, animals with tools, and we kind of lead us to think that there's some mathematical content involved. Or, let's say this one, fish as good as college students in number test, and mosquito fish can count up to 100 and count in quotes. So the whole thing as a package in this society, there's a kind of a widely accepted view that says that there's a biologically evolved capacity that is specific for number and arithmetic. And I will underline here the word specific. Now, of course, the question is, is it really the case? And it's been some debate more lately and part of the issue is that some of these terms are polysemous, like number, we use it for passport number, telephone number, and many other things. So what do we really mean by number? 
And it turns out that in the literature, the scientific literature is permeated really with underspecified conceptions of what is number, such that we can ascribe numerical and arithmetical and mathematical capacities to many other species. So let's examine this a little bit more. If we leave aside non-human animals for a moment, we can focus on human data that's been overlooked. For example, all known languages have natural quantifiers like few, several, many, and so on. But by no means they all exhibit exact quantification. A recent study about 200 languages in Aboriginal Australia from 13 different linguistic families showed that in fact almost 90% of these languages do not have a numeral beyond what we would call five. So you can't, in this culture speaking these languages, refer to seven or 12 or 19 or 23. Now, similar research has been found with uh, hunter-gatherers in, in um, Australia and Africa and South America, and I strongly recommend also the book by uh, Caleb Everett that goes more in-depth analyzing these particular cultures. Now, the point is here that when we look at human language, language by itself really does not lead to number beyond the subitizing range. So exact quantification seems to be a cultural trait, not a biological trait. So how do we get from perceiving, let's say, these dots to labeling them as, let's say, being nine or eight, whether with spoken words or with digits? Well, when we do that, we're involved in what is called symbolic reference. It's not just a purely psychophysical perception anymore. It's now another cognitive activity like symbolic reference. And we could do this with many other types of numerals, like in Spanish, nueve and ocho, or we could do Roman numerals and, and other forms and different bases in mathematics or infinite decimal notation, if you like, and so on and so forth. And there's another important property. It's they're relational and operable. So like my laptop computer here says number eight is, is that um, equivalent to the product of two and four. It's one more than seven and those things. So they're all related to each other. So really, our familiar list one, two, three... Um, has very specific abstract properties, like it quantifies exactly, not in an approximate way, and it is abstract, transcending stimulus modality, visual or auditory. It has a cardinal sense, an ordinal sense, a relational um, property that we just saw, combinative, operable, and most importantly, referred to symbolically. So the number really is exact symbolic quantification. And this seems to be quite different from what we observe, let's say, with trained by humans, of course, trained animals in the lab, where you can get, for example, monkeys in painstaking training, four months, 20,000 trials to discriminate dots in a ratio three to four, only to 70% of accuracy. So it seems to be that we're in a different realm here. So to summarize here, you can look at this figure. Essentially what we have is amount of discrete stuff, let's say dots, going from center to periphery, um, increasing in amount. So what you see on your bottom, bottom left here, um, what you have is subitizing and large quantity discrimination, the two abilities we just exercised a little bit at the beginning, and we share those with many species. Now, with symbolic reference, there's a symbolic gap there, we can then um, label things like natural quantifiers, like many, few, and so on, and then 
with exact quantification, we get into what you see clockwise there in blue, which is now truly numerical. So the point is, here, what you see on the left is really about quantity perception. It's quantical abilities that we, it's biologically endowed. But in order to really get to number, we need to go across the symbolic reference, and that is not biologically evolvable. So here I'm going to borrow a quote from Terry Deacon, also a member of CARTA, who says, symbolic reference must be acquired by learning, so this occurs in the ontogeny of individuals, and lacks both the natural associations and transgenerational reproductive consequences that would make such references biologically evolvable. So exact symbolic quantification beyond the subitizing range really needs a whole apparatus, a culture that actually cares about being exact and precise. So motivated by cultural preoccupations, tracking valuables, trading, accounting, and so on. And this supported by and enhanced by tools and offloading cognition, which requires enculturation. Of course, part of that comes, and we heard already previously about this, the invention of writing about 6,000 years ago, initially, according to many authors, coming from tokens, tokens printed on envelope of clays and eventually leading to clay tablets. But you could also have, in the absence of writing, for example, like the Inca did in, uh, um, with, with the use of the quipus, doing, performing amazingly sophisticated uh, calculations without writing. Or um, what you see in Oceania and Papua New Guinea in many groups, you have now grammatical tools um, in the language that could, for example, codify um, certain types of you know, morphemes that would characterize number quantities for counting things you care about. For example, in this case, um, as you see in the picture, yams in the culture nan, um, work done by Nick Evans. So what's in common there is that you need a conventionalized symbolic reference for exact quantification. Now, when there is number, we all, most, most number systems are in base 5 or 10. And you would say, why is that? Well, here we have a very handy tool. All of a sudden, in front of us, you can identify fingers, and we can sort of, you know, they're readily available. So that could explain part of it. The issue is that gorillas, chimpanzees, and many species, raccoons, they also are pentadactyl, so they also have five fingers. So evolution there, giving that particular form. So we have that. We have brains that control and get all the inputs, etc. But what we don't have in these cases is symbolic reference, the capacity to actually use this as now potential tools, which doesn't come with a handbook. Cultural variations exist, um, and how you actually use the hound for counting. So here you have at the top right, Number eight being characterized bimanually, unimanually, sometimes using the fingers, sometimes using the, the, the finger joints. So number eight, if you use cymbal joints and the tip, would be this, for example, and so on, in some cultures. Now, when there is written exact symbolic number, it seems all this to be mediated by culturally shaped cortical phenotypical plasticity. According to this work by Tang et al., for example, they presented digits to uh, English speakers and Chinese native speakers, and they just asked to do very simple calculations. And what we observe is very different recruitment for uh, neural populations in the two groups. You see more uh, recruitment in the you know, left hemisphere, um, perisylvian area, 
um, in the English speakers and much, let's say, more in uh, pre-modal regions for the Chinese speakers. So number then, really, what we have is, is a language-mediated, conventionalized, exact symbolic quantification, which is a cultural trait. And this occurrently quite, quite recently and largely outside of biological evolution. So it builds on biologically evolved preconditions. We need subitizing and large quantity discrimination, but themselves, they're not mathematical or numerical. So these are motivated by cultural preoccupations, as I said, supported crucially by material and conceptual tools and the biology that makes enculturation possible. So I want to take this now to the next step. Once we have numbers, we can start creating all kinds of other things. One of a very ubiquitous, powerful tool is a number line, which now we need another system, which is to conceive numbers as locations in space, metaphorically, if you will. And this, of course, many of the talks before this, when we're using graphs to characterize amounts and so on, we do, we help, uh, it's helpful for reading um, economic graphs and look at scientific data or develop, you know, vector spaces and, and fancy visualizations and so on. What is interesting is that these days, this is learned or presented in kindergarten. So kindergartens already start to see little bunnies jumping back and forth and froggies doing jumping jumps and so on and so forth. So this has led a lot of people to think that perhaps we have, a, again, a biologically endowed mental number line which is housed in the intraparietal sulcus of the human brain. Well, that's true if you only look at Westerners who already went to school and you know, have done all this work. So um, a lot of papers support the idea that you would have very spontaneous mappings and occurring in infants, in macaques, and more recently, a paper in Science that, you know, saying that newborn chicks now, so go figure what kind of cortex they would have, um, would have actually have a mental number line like humans. Now, if that were really the case, let's cross that with some other type of data. For example, we would expect culture, number savvy cultures, like Babylonian, let's say, to have some manifestation of number line somewhere in all the number crunching they did. Well, when you look at the half a million tablets that we know today, there's not a single number line there. So that says something. They did a lot of numbers without a number line. In fact, you have to go to 17th century. It's not even in La, la Geometrie by René Descartes, who invented analytic geometry. Not a single number line there either. The first appears to be um, John Napier when he's introducing of logarithms, a very sophisticated notion. And he is saying, okay, here's a line, we're going to start thinking this way. But the first who does an operational use of a number line is John Wallace. And here, if you really look at the text, he says, okay, talking, the audience is the la crème de la crème, the top of the top of the mathematicians in Europe in 17th century, saying, think of a man walking five steps and then walking two back, and that's going to be five minus two equals three. That's what you hear today in a kindergarten class, but this is now a few hundred years ago in Europe. So we also wanted to test how spontaneous is this. So we went, we did a study among the Yubna of Papua New Guinea, and we presented a line segment and uh, following other methods that have been used in, Amazon, in, in the Amazon. And we could see that, for example, even though they had numbers to at least 20 uh, numerals, um, they essentially mapped small numbers on one end and bigger to the other end, whether it was dots or tones or other things, unlike the school you know, and 
um, California controls, as you can see on the right side. So the red one being the unschooled using only the, um, the extremes. So no use of the path whatsoever, which is required for the number line. So the intuition doesn't seem to be, again, universal in that sense. So what do we do with these abstractions? Well, we do crazy things. So of course we have the mathematicians very recently developing it, but today is introduced in the kindergarten class. But this could be taken to further directions to develop the notions of hyperreal lines. So all of a sudden now the number line and the real line, which is now housing irrational numbers and rational numbers, and by virtue of the least upper bound axiom, you have a complete order field. No more dots could fit in there. Well, you can when you go to non-Archimedean numbers. Infinitely tiny, infinitely small numbers, the epsilons you see there, or huge numbers, their reciprocals, the omegas, that are bigger and larger than any real number. So then you start to have embedded, mutually incompatible, non-commensurable number lines embedded in, in infinitely many spots, in infinitely many of these lines. All these going back to the simple number line that we developed a few hundred years ago. So really, the story of numbers and tools and mathematics can be reduced to this process of enculturation where you do need an, a biological apparatus that would support it. So I would like to close with this quote, and I, I thank Pascal Gagneux for pointing me to this one, by geneticist and evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky, who said, human evolution has two components, the biological or organic and the cultural or superorganic. These components are neither mutually exclusive nor independent, but interrelated and interdependent. Human evolution cannot be understood as a purely biological process, nor can it be adequately described as a history of culture. It is the interaction of biology and culture, and I think mathematics exemplifies this perfectly well. Thank you. So I'd like you to raise your hand if someone in your life, a young person in your life, often looks like this. So maybe it's a child, a grandchild, the person in the line for coffee in front of you. Okay, you are not alone. Um, meet this generation of digital natives, right? So we've heard that term, a generation of young people that were born um, you know, without knowing a time before the internet. So I'm a digital immigrant. I won't ask you to identify if you are or not. Um, but I, I remember a, a world without the internet and having to learn how to integrate the digital world into how I work, how I communicate. And that's a very different space than our kids are, are growing up in now. So in the digital age, the one thing we do know is that the young people among us are early adopters they are enthusiastic adopters of new technologies. Um, here's some data just from 2004. We started following kids around on their mobile devices around 2007. And this just shows you some of the changes we saw during that time. 2018 is the last time for which we have a representative sample. And 95% of adolescents now have access to a mobile device. Um, they're on them quite a lot. And so a recent survey showed us that Tweens, those are our eight to twelve year olds. They're on four, you know, four point three six hours, and this is just for media screen time. So this doesn't count screen time for homework or other activities, right? Um, teens, it's six point four hours a day, so almost six and a half hours a day. And I want you to hold the number in your mind. That's the three hours more per day 
that children from low-income households are on a screen. So there's a huge difference in screen time based on the income level of your, of your family. So we have a sample of about 2,000 young adolescents we've been following, and these are some data on them. This is just them across age. So on the bottom of the screen, you'll see age here from 11 to 15, and you'll see if the young people in your life are around 11 years old, about 48% of their peers own a mobile device. Right? As we get older in our sample, we get up here to almost full saturation. This line up here is access to the internet at home. So something we used to worry a lot about in education was the digital divide. So some kids not having access to the internet, that's no longer true. Um, and smartphone use is actually higher among children from lower income families. So we don't see that traditional digital divide. Um, we see few differences in mobile device ownership by socioeconomic status. But as I'm going to show you, we see differences in experiences and maybe effects. Right. So what does this all mean? You probably, if you pick up a paper, probably today or tomorrow, you'll read some story about how digital devices are ruining our children. Right? Smartphones are destroying a generation. Recently, we had a number of psychologists sign a letter, an open letter to Apple, demanding that tech companies end their addictive practices toward our children. Based on evidence, they said that smartphones were making our children lonely, depressed, suicidal, Right? stealing things from them. These are big claims. Right? These are big claims. So is this constant connection? Is it harmful to our kids? And I'm going to show you two pieces of evidence. The first one is from a team in Britain, and they've assembled large masses of data on hundreds of thousands of adolescents. Now, these are surveys, so just correlational research, asking kids to report on the amount of time they're on their devices and their mental health problems. Right? I'm going to show you a graph here, but the thing to focus on is just this pattern. It's a Goldilocks effect, right? So here are the kids that are not on screen time at all in a day. Here are the kids in those one or two hours, and then here's kind of a deterioration of well-being across time, right? So described as a Goldilocks effect, the kids that are on not at all don't look so great on mental health. The kids in the one to two hour range you know, look good, and then out at the lower ends of the tail, or the higher ends of the tail, those kids are experiencing some problems. Now remember, this is correlational. The other thing to remember is that these data, and all the data that are presented, including the data where people argue that smartphones are causing mental health problems, these actually explain less than 1% of the differences between kids and their, men and their mental health. So said another way, 99.5% of the reasons that kids are different than each other on their mental health problems is due to something other than screen time. Right? These same authors took other variables they measured in the data chips, or chips, in the data, including potato chips, eating potato chips, higher correlation than screen time. Right? Eating breakfast, 14 times higher than screen time. Right? So just a, just a word of caution. Now, we took a different approach. We've been following kids on their phone. So we, we had the advantage of not necessarily comparing kids to each other. So a kid who's on zero hours a day and a kid who's on five hours a day, they look very different on things other than screen time, right? Their parents probably have them in a very different structured environment. Lots of things are different. So we looked and followed the same kids over time and asked the question, on days when Sally is using screens a lot, what does her cognition look like? What does her mental health look like? What does her sleep look like in days when she's using less? So we use her as her own control. 
This is a study done by uh, Mikey Jensen, one of my postdocs. And this is in North Carolina. This is the state of North Carolina. Um, each one of those red dots is where a family in our study lives of the 2,000 kids. And 400 of those kids we followed intensively on their phones. So every day they're reporting to us on how much they're using their devices, um, their mental health, etc. And we find very few associations between how much they're using their mental health. Right, And where we do find signal is actually in the opposite direction. So days that they're more closely connected to their friends and family online are days that they're less lonely and depressed. But again, really small effects. We've been interested in this. We've been using um, digital technology and mobile phones as a tool to study adolescents' mental health. And when we first started in this area, parents were asking for us advice, right? It's scary, right? It's scary to have an adolescent period, right? It's scary to have them glued to their phone all the time. Um, And so what we wanted to dig a little deeper in was what are the fears, right, that parents have? And what's the science? What do we really know, right? And then what's the narrative? So we went through and we identified these seven fears that parents and adults have when they see young people walking around on their devices. And then we went to the scientific literature and we, we started to examine what, a, what do we actually know about the effects. And here, um, I won't have time to go into them all today, but I'll just summarize with a couple of messages. Um, in most cases, we found mixed results. We need more data. But In the majority of cases, we actually found evidence for positive effects, right? So kids that were most connected online were also most connected offline. If there were signs of vulnerability, bullying, et cetera, offline, those kids were also experiencing problems online. So it was a bit of a mirror between online and offline life. Parent time, so it was displacing time you'd spend with parents, but it wasn't impacting the relationship, Right. Where we do find some negative effects is in multitasking, right? So Paula mentioned that before. We need to keep our eye on that. And sleep is critically important, right? So there is no question that um, being on your phone late at night, which many kids are, is impairing sleep in important ways, right? But when we published these results, people were angry, right? Parents were angry at us. Um, we, we were saying that, you know, there are these things that are happening with our kids, other things that we worry about, but we don't think the phone is the problem, right? Um, And this wasn't a popular message. And in the discussion section, you guys can yell at me then. I'm used to it now. I wasn't ready for it here, but I'm I'm ready now. Um, And so what we asked is, what are the risks? What are the risks of assuming that phones are to blame for these really important problems facing our kids um, versus taking a more holistic view? Now, Paula did a wonderful job of asking this question of rewiring the brain, and um, Leah showed us signs of developmental plasticity in the brain, and this has been the focus of extreme attention right now, right? So headlines, are smartphones rewiring the brain? And again, this isn't a new concern, right, whether tools are impacting the brain in some way. This is from the New York Times in the 1904, right? Concerned that these race car drivers might have a different brain, right? We've seen concern. We see fears about new technologies. We saw this with, right, a writing, as people starting to write. This is going to impair our ability to remember things. With, with kids, with kids, we've seen this with numerous things. We've seen it with the introduction of romance novels, the introduction of public libraries, rock and roll, things that kids are doing we don't like. 
my husband started to complain about this, and I said, stop complaining, because I think this means that we're not kids anymore. Uh, <laughs> kids these days. So this is Scientific America. Are smartphones really destroying the adolescent brain? And I think that you know this is an important question of how the brain is becoming rewired, how we're learning language differently, etc. There's a recent article that showed, in fact, digital technology use and thumb movement can be traced differences in this on a day-to-day level to cortical activity based on an EEG. And those are important questions. But I think maybe they're the wrong ones right now if we're thinking about our kids' well-being. I think the the questions that we need to be asking are how are these tools used? How are we scaffolding and how are we engaging with these new technologies with our kids and optimizing them for their potential in their future? So um, we wrote recently that smartphones, they might be bad for some teens, right? Um, But not for all. And if you take you back to that initial data that I showed you, children in low-income households spending on average three more hours a day on their phone than kids in more affluent households. It's not just the time difference, it's what you're doing doing online, right? So higher-income households more likely to be using digital technologies for educational purposes, looking up information, right? Lower-income households, less parental involvement, less adult involvement on average in scaffolding those behaviors and building digital literacy and the other things that we know our kids are going to need if the future is in fact digital. In our study we found that um, children in disadvantaged households, they actually experienced more spillover from social media. So something that happens on social media, actually they report results in an offline problem, a fight, an argument, trouble at school, right? So it might not just be different experiences, it might be different effects for kids that are the most vulnerable. So as we, we look into the future, it's really not so much about the effect of the tool, right? The access to these tools is equaling out. Right? Kids have access to computers. Kids have access to smartphones across socioeconomic status. But the types of experiences they're having online, the type of help that they're getting to ensure that they build the skills in an online world and for an online future are very different. And it's possible that there might be more negative effects for certain populations of children. So I would encourage us as we kind of look towards supporting children in the digital world that we look past some of the headlines, some of the fears that we have, some of the reasons that we don't like the technology itself. And for parents who report the biggest sources of conflict in their home is fights over how long their kid is on a device. And I screamed at my child yesterday for this and caught myself. So instead of focusing on the time limits, focus on what they're doing. Take some time, spend some time with them there. And we're entering into a whole new world as our, our homes get smarter, right? So here's a little boy talking to his Alexia, right? And I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lively discussion of, of what it means to have Alexia raising our children soon. So thank you for your attention um, and for the opportunity. All right, so to uh, address this question of the impact of tool use and technology uh, on the evolution of the human mind, I want, to address, I want to begin by addressing this question. How can we account for our species' immense ecological dominance and our stunning technological prowess? Now, when people approach this question, they come to it with certain intuitions, intuitions that we're smart, we're good at building causal models of how the world works, We're good at individually figuring out, and this must be the secret of our success. But 
it turns out that that's not the best story and that we're actually not that good at figuring things out. And so what I'm going to try to convince you today is that, in fact, uh, there's another way of approaching this and there's a different explanation for the secret of our success. Okay, so I'm going to just begin with a little bit of data. So this comes from a battery of cognitive tests administered to three different species. So two-and-a-half-year-old humans, chimpanzees, and orangutans. And this research is done by Esther Herman and Mike Tomasello at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And so 18 different cognitive tests broken down into three different areas. So uh, space, a subset of tests on space, quantities, causality, and social learning. And what you can see from this figure here is that... um, The humans do about as well as the chimps. They get about 70% right on the space. Uh, The chimps actually do slightly better than the humans on uh, on quantity. So it's within the margin of error, but the chimps do a little bit better. And same thing on causality. The, The chimps do marginally better. Now, if you dig into the causality test and look specifically at the tests that try to measure differences in tool using, the chimps actually do much better on tool using than the two and a half year old children. Now, I think the real telling point here is that if I were to give these, this battery of cognitive tests to you guys, you would blow the roof off the test and you'd do much better than the apes. So between two and going up well into the 20s, humans still, we get better and better at these kind of solving these cognitive problems. So something is happening during that time. Meanwhile, if we look at the chimpanzees, there's no change over the course of their lives. In fact, sometimes the young chimpanzees, the five-year-old chimpanzees, are better at the tasks than the older chimpanzees. So that's a hint to what, to what must be going on there. There's nothing special about these particular measures. I could show you uh, data on working memory or chimps and humans engaging in strategic thinking, and you would see that there's no uh, particular human advantage in this. Another way of getting at this would be to think about taking this room of very smart people and parachuting you into the Aturi forest or into the Amazon basin and having you try to survive. And you would no doubt struggle. You couldn't start fire. You couldn't make tools. Um, If it was a game of survivor, you would probably lose to to Dorothy's capuchins. Uh, So so we're clearly missing something. Humans rely on this large body of cultural inheritance. So it's not our innate intelligence, our problem-solving abilities, our ability to build causal models on the fly, but something else. So where do our fancy tools and technologies come from? So I'm going to make the case that it comes from our collective brain. And particularly, our collective brain is anchored in our cultural natures and social natures. So these are two separate things. Our cultural natures is our ability to learn from others, to look out into the minds and behaviors of others in our social milieu and filter out and learn ideas, beliefs, values, practices from other members of our group. The social part is that For various reasons, we're able to live in large groups. And the larger the group, the better. The more we're able to generate ideas, beliefs, and values that are adapted to our environments, more sophisticated technologies. All right, now to get at this question from an evolutionary perspective, uh, and this this approach was actually uh, Marcus Feldman led us off today. And in 1976, he wrote a paper with Luca Luigi Cavalli Sforza in which they made the first effort to take the logic of natural selection of genetic evolution and to think about how it might have shaped our psychology for cultural learning, our abilities to to adaptively extract ideas, beliefs, and values from other members of our social group. Others like Boyd and Richardson went to build build a large research program on that process. And since then, there's been a great deal of research, much of it with young children, showing that from even before age one, we keenly uh, attend to who we learn from. So we learn from certain individuals. We're particular about what we learn from. 
uh, how we integrate information across individuals, and when we choose to use social learning over our own intuitions or our own experience. And together, when you put all this together in large groups over many generations, it produces what I call cultural adaptations. And this includes the fancy tools and technologies that we're so impressive for in the natural world. Now, this process can and often does operate outside of conscious awareness. Now, one of my favorite things to do is to regale people with many, many examples of all the ways in which cultural evolution builds adaptive behavior in ways that are unconscious and unseen behind the scenes. I'll just give you one example today. Uh, it's something you're already familiar with, spices. So people use spices in different ways. Different cultures have different spicing traditions. Some places use many more spices in their recipes than other places. But once you realize that spices are an adaptation to the problem of foodborne pathogens, you can predict a whole bunch of things about the kinds of plants for which we'll harvest their chemical properties and put them in our foods, which societies will tend to use a lot of spices, which spices they'll use, and how they'll recombine spices in synergetic ways that make it more powerful and more antimicrobial. And you can predict which kinds of foods. And this can all happen outside of conscious awareness. Many of you probably didn't know that spicing was... Um, uh, uh, projecting against foodborne pathogens. And in some cases, it's even possible to show that if people understood, they might be less likely to do the behavior and it would be maladaptive. So understanding is a bad thing. <laughs> in some cases. Uh, now, when you begin to build models and think about how humans learn, so we take what we know about human learning and we allow humans to learn in groups, interconnected in different ways, one of the robust findings from what is now a, a decent body of literature is that larger and more interconnected populations evolve technologies and tools and other aspects of culture more quickly in adapting to their environment, and their ability to hold and preserve large bodies of different tools and technologies uh, is, is, lar is bigger, is more. They can hold more of them in larger populations. Even more interesting and something that you can use to solve various puzzles throughout human history and around the world is that a sudden reduction in the size of a population will cause populations to ebb away technology to lose things over time. Now, one piece of evidence that I like for this is research done by Michelle Klein and Robert Boyd. And what these anthropologists did is they went back to the ethnography from uh, societies all over Polynesia, and they coded marine foraging technology. And they counted the number of tools these different islands around the Pacific had, uh, and they also assessed the complexity. And you can see here, this is an example of how very simple method developed by Wendell Oswald in which you just count the parts in the tool, and you can get a number of techno units for that tool. Show you the results here quickly. So in this plot here on this side, you can see this is the population size. It's a log scale. These dots are the different islands, and this is the number of tools. So larger islands had more, uh, more different kinds of tools for marine foraging. And this is the mean number of techno units. So not only did larger islands have more total tools, those tools were on average more complex. They had more parts. You can see that they also differentiated by contact. So in addition to the population size, they got a measure of how connected the islands were. And islands that had more contact with other islands in the Pacific, were, they're above the line, which means that they have an extra boost over and above their population size from the interconnectedness, from being a little bit more interconnected with other populations. And um, one thing that's interesting from the point of view of looking back at the paleoanthropological record is it's not an uncommon practice to try to infer things about the cognition of ancient creatures based on the kind of tools they make. But if you were to use that same approach here, you would deduce that the folks who lived in Hawaii traditionally were much smarter and more mentally sophisticated than the folks who lived in this small island off the coast of New Guinea. 
the lesson here is that it's really the collective brain that's doing work, not the individual smarts of the, of the people in the brain. Incidentally, this, was, this is part of the Austronesian expansion, so it's relatively recent. We can be confident there aren't genetic differences there. Okay. All right. Now, I don't want you to think that this is just interesting for thinking about uh, ancient Polynesian societies. So I put in this plot, which is U.S. cities and uh, the number of innovations they produce based on patent data. So the larger the U.S. city, over 10,000, the more patents they produce. That's not too interesting in that we would expect larger cities to have more people to produce more patents, but this is a super linear relationship, which means controlling for things like education and occupation, the same person put into a larger city is more likely to produce patents and innovations. So it's the people get more innovative in larger cities. There's a number of data sets showing the same relationship. Okay, now those are all interesting correlations, and, and, but we can't be too confident there's actually a causal relationship. So what researchers have done is to go to the laboratory and try to create micro-societies, which allow us to get some insights. So the typical um, micro-society that's been used by a number of different researchers is to take a bunch of, say, 100 undergraduates and create generations. So each individual gets a task that they have to solve. They do their best on the task. Um, my tradition likes to pay people for right answers. And then they transmit the information in some way down to another generation of undergraduates, you know, laboratory generations, who then takes that information, does their best, and passes it down. So we're going to run this for 10 generations. Now, the key thing in this setup is that in this, the individual condition, you can only learn from one teacher, so not much interconnectedness. In this condition, you could learn from any one of the five in the prior generation, so you could potentially recombine ideas from different individuals. They had to replicate this image with a notoriously user-unfriendly image editing program, and they they had a time limit. As I mentioned, they're paid for their performance, but they're also incentivized for their students' performance. So they get more money if they send good instructions, which then after the task, they can write up to two pages, which goes down to the next generation. It allows us to analyze the kinds of things people said. And then so the next generation, everybody after generation one, they get the model's product, which they can compare to the target image, this image, uh, and they get the write-up. And then they have a go at the task themselves. This is the results, so uh, 10 generations. You can see here in generation one, they actually had a pretty good group uh, of the, the, single, the single learning uh, tradition group. And then, but in the more interconnected group, they didn't have such a lucky first group. But here, a cumulative cultural evolutionary process kicked in, where they could take from the previous generation, they could add to it, any lucky insights were brought together, and then passed down. So that by the end, uh, the 10th generation is twice as skilled as the 10th generation in the other treatment. Not only that, if you break down and look at the data individually, the worst person in the interconnected population, so the population that could learn from others, is better than the best person in the single population where you just have one-to-one learning. So it makes a big difference in how apparently smart people look. It looks like they can just do things better. All right. So I want to get back to the question that I began at the beginning when I introduced the apes and the humans. And uh, this was the idea that so something from going from a two-and-a-half-year-old when your cognition is not that much better than a, than a chimpanzee till you're 20-something when you can blow the roof off the test, what happens there? 
And part of what's going on here is a download of pre-built solutions that have accumulated in our inherited body of know-how over many generations. So simple things like uh, springs and screws and levers and pulleys are hard to invent for the first time. But once you grow up in, in an environment that has springs and screws and levers and pulleys, they're easy to figure out and then reapply to new, to new contexts. One example that I like is the wheel. It seems relatively simple. You see Gary Larson cartoons with ancient human ancestors using experimenting with wheels. But actually, uh, the wheel arrives relatively late in human history, about 6,000 years ago. It appears on carts and then pottery. Eventually, it's used to transfer power, but only in Eurasia. It doesn't appear in the uh, North America, South America, Oceania, Australia. So they don't invent wheels. Sometimes people have pointed to uh, certain kinds of animals being present, but the dog's everywhere. And you can see the Belgians here are using this dog to pull their cart. So there's at least some kind of animals that can pull. Uh, and then once you have wheels, you can do all kinds of things with them. Elastically stored energy used to make a bow and arrow. Um, never invented in Australia. You don't see anything with elastically stored energy. Fletching is not invented in New Guinea, although uh, New Guinea folks do have bows and arrows. We heard from Raphael about uh, the counting systems. So lots of societies like the Machiganga who I worked with count one, two, three, many. Um, but this group counts to 27. You can see we, uh, Raphael and I read the same literature. Um, and uh, you can find everything in between. So you can find uh, groups that can count to 11, 13, 36. Some groups figure out how to cycle. But you guys have all been bequeathed a counting system that allows you to count without bound. Another example is the number zero. So the number zero as a placeholder has only been invented twice in human history. Once by the Mayans and a second time in India. It diffuses to Europe through uh, Islamic societies. All right. My favorite example is the abacus. So you can track the evolution of the abacus from Babylonian counting boards. And you can see how the abacus is evolving culturally to take use of how we use space and how we clump things in order to exploit aspects of our evolved cognition. But then what's amazing to me is that children can train on the abacus, the physical device, and then with sufficient training, they can put the abacus aside. And then you can give them incredibly complex calculation problems where they're adding up large, large numbers, 10 or 15 of them. Um, and they do it. You can see their fingers moving and they're not touching anything physical and they seem to be looking up in the air. And then suddenly they come out with the answer. And they have races between uh, the mental abacus and the calculator. So this is a whole new cognitive ability that's kind of bootstrapped up from this physical apparatus, which evolved culturally to fit aspects of our, of our minds. All right, and so this gives us a different picture of how, how humans have evolved. So culture-driven genetic evolution. Sometime in our species uh, evolutionary history, I think it happened actually before about two million years ago, we became a species with cumulative cultural evolution. What we passed down from one generation was built upon by the next generation. Um, how this happened, if you want to know that, you'll have to read my book, The Secret of Our Success. Uh, I, I actually favor a kind of social explanation. So if we became more social and had larger groups, that could, that could push a group, a group of primates across this threshold, what I call the Rubicon. And this leads to ongoing cultural evolution. Now, of course, genetic evolution doesn't stop and hasn't stopped now. So we have two parallel inheritance systems. And these in inheritance systems have been interacting over millions of years, potentially, or at least hundreds of thousands. So you can produce things like stone tools, like Dietrich told us about, that allow you to process food and reduce the selection pressure on your teeth and your chewing apparatus. 
It can produce things like fire and cooking, which allows us to externalize our digestive system and shrink our colon, shrink our stomachs. Um, it supplies energy to allow us to have larger brains, it gives us uh, extra dexterity in our hands to use those tools. And in particular, in this world, our brains are being selected for their ability to acquire, organize, store, and retransmit cultural information. We're, we're cultural learners, as because the more our brains get better at doing this culture thing, the more cumulative cultural evolution is going to create things that we need to learn. So now the game is that all the valuable stuff I need to know is, is in the minds of the prior generation. And if I can get some, learn something from him and something from him and something from her, then I can recombine them and have an even better cultural repertoire. So things like throwing and uh, finding tubers underground, uh, water containers can allow us to engage in long-distance running, running and persistence hunting. This is going to create a pressure for even larger brains to learn all those tools and technologies clothings and adhesives, eventually projectiles. And this can explain why we, have a, why we seem to have a specialized cognition for learning about artifacts. And we regard and learn about those in a different way uh, than we learn about things in the biological world, so plants and animals. And in particular, it helps explain why we're willing to put faith in the wisdom of prior generations. Developmental psychologists call this over-imitation, why we copy all the steps. But it also explains why we might be willing to believe in invisible beings or other magical powers. There's a lot of wisdom in the tradition, and, and we can't always tell what the useful information is from the not-so-useful information. So the key to understanding humans is to recognize this long-term period of dual inheritance. Um, and that's it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.